How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. Welcome to How Hard Can It Be, up close and personal with the real people in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano, and you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Trap or read my blog at MikeTrap.com. Uh, my guest today is Mohammed Ali. Mohammed is the president and CEO of Carbonite, which provides cloud and hybrid data protection solutions for businesses. Mohammed joined Carbonite from Hewlett Packard, where he served as chief strategy officer, reporting to Meg Whitman, HP's chairman and CEO. Before HP, he led Avaya's $2 billion global services division as its president and was additionally responsible for that company's research labs, strategy, and corporate development. He also held senior positions at IBM, including vice president of strategy and business development for the information management division, where he acquired numerous companies, including software developer Cognos, in a $5 billion transaction most people in Boston already know about. Uh, I find a couple of things fascinating about Mohammed. The, the first is his background. He's an immigrant. Um, and has been one of the most vocal voices in Boston in support of immigration uh, in these current uh, political times. And uh, his story there is remarkable, and he'll share it with us today. Uh, the second thing is really his approach to business. Uh, we've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs on this podcast, and his approach to value creation is a little bit different. Uh, less as a founder, uh, more as a, a professional manager who comes in, formulates a vision for how to take a business to the next level, accumulates the assets required to do so, and then leads a team in executing to that vision. Uh, he's a remarkable person and uh, a great leader, and uh, I'm really excited for you to get to know him. Here now is my conversation with Carbonite President and CEO, Mohammed Ali. Welcome. Thank you, Mike. How are you doing? to be here. It's, oh. uh, it's great to have you. Uh, we've known each other for a while across uh, multiple of your adventures, and I'm really excited to share your story with people. Well, thank you. And I've learned from you so many times, <laughs> and I look to learn from you again. That's incredibly kind of you to say. All right. So, um, Take us back to the beginning. You grew up in a place that uh, no one else we've spoken to has grown up in. And uh, where was that place? That place is called Guyana. It's one of the most important places on the planet. Everybody <laughs> should know about it. It's a small country in South America. It's the only English-speaking country. Uh, it has less than a million people. And, um, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a in an environment that was um, well, a bit of a tough environment. It was a, you know... Uh, communist-leaning country, they had nationalized all the assets, uh, flour was illegal, you know, basic food stuff you couldn't get. Wow. Um, so it was, a, it was an interesting first part of my life. Sure. And, um, you know, I've heard this great story of coming here with your mom and uh, arriving at the airport. What did you encounter there, do you recall? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we get off of the, uh, you know, the, the airplane and walk out. And um, my mom and I, we see this machine we'd never seen before. Uh, we stood at the base. We plotted how to get on the machine. We thought it, you could get on the machine relatively okay, but getting off looked complicated. It was an escalator. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, you know, just in incredible. I mean, like to, to go from that and, and I'm sure, you know, the early days you were in New York City, right? So tell us a little bit about that part of your life. 
Yeah, I mean, New York City is great. I love New York City. Uh, it's a little bit of a pressure cooker. Um, you know, lots of immigrants, so you've always felt right at home. Uh, but it's also the kind of place where, in some ways, uh, at least for me, it was where I developed my entrepreneurial spirit. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot, um, and I, I, we, I needed to find ways of making money for myself. And um, New York is just a perfect place to do that. Right. You had a real experience there um, as an enterprising young man. Uh, tell us about uh, how you made a little extra cash in high school. Yeah, um, I, I, I sort of accidentally got into this elite high school, and there were 3,000 students who knew about computers, and, um, and they were a great, great market. And so one day I discovered this uh, Hasidic Jewish guy in south of Brooklyn that would sell me these floppy disks in bulk for maybe like 25 cents, and I would take them back to my high school, and uh, I had a locker full of these things, and after a while people knew I sold these things, I could sell them for about two bucks, and I made a killing on this. There you go. That's it. We were saying, um, just joking, that that uh, sometimes, especially running business, big businesses, it's you, you forget the, the cardinal rule, which is you're looking for revenue and excessive expense. That's right. right. <laughs> all the business strategy stuff, all that stuff. Like you know, you're trying to to generate more money than you're than you're you're selling oh, out. The right? margins on this business was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it's the volume. You know, if I can get a dozen people doing this with me, I, I wouldn't even be here today, Mike. There you go. I'd be still doing there it. There you go. Yeah. So. Um, so you, you, you went to this elite high school, but you, you ended up in Stanford, which had to be a big deal in your, in your family and, I mean, even in your neighborhood. How many kids from that school end up, uh, end up there? Uh, quite a few. So this, this high school that I went to was one of these public high schools that you had to test to get into, oh, right, sort of like right. Boston Latin here. Sure. Uh, so quite a few. But I tell you, when I got into Stanford, my parents didn't know anything about Stanford. They didn't know where it was. And uh, the only thing that they, they could say is, that seems like really far away. Yeah. Yeah. No, they were right. <laughs> they were right. Um, you know, one of the things I found interesting and just sort of brushing up on your background is, is you were a computer science major, but you studied history as well. Yeah. What was that about? Why, why, did, you, why did you have um, uh, an interest in that? You know, I, I can't tell you why I had an interest, but I've always been interested in people and um, and how people and societies and cultures have developed. So when I got to Stanford, I took one history class. I loved it. Um, I was an engineering major. Um, but then I took another one and another one. And by my junior year, I realized I had enough history classes to get an extra degree. And I decided to just finish all the classes and get a second degree in history. Good for you. What did you do after Stanford? Ah, after Stanford. So while I was at Stanford, I worked for Adobe, um, which was back then a smaller company. It felt like a startup. Yeah. Um, and then um, after I left, a friend of mine from Stanford wanted to start an artificial intelligence company. And so we did that. We started this company. Um, and uh, we actually grew it to $10 million. And, uh, and then it, it got sold in parts. But, um, but that was a really, really great experience for me. It, uh, you know, it took that sort of entrepreneurial spirit that I had developed earlier in New York City and applied it to a technology company. And, and that, that experience was great because not only was I able to put the entrepreneurial spirit to work, but I learned a lot about this particular category of technology called artificial intelligence. And today, 
with all the big data work that you see and all the machine learning and all the AI, it's the same exact algorithms. The only difference is the amount of data that you have and the amount of compute. And so, um, uh, you know, I look back on, on what we did 25 years ago, and it, it's actually quite relevant to what I do today, even what we're doing at Carbonite today. Well, that's remarkable. Yeah. You know, in, in anyone's first startup experience um, building a business, you know, you do a bunch of stupid stuff and figure it out as you go. Uh, it's a messy business, typically. And, and, you know, knowing what you know now as an accomplished executive, when you look back on that experience, you as a young man coming out of school to start your first company, you know, what would you have done differently? What do, what do you think you did out of the gate that you're like, oh, my God, well, how did we not know this? Yeah, oh, there are so many things. And um, and actually, just to let you make, make it clear, the friend of mine started the company, and I joined him a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, but we made a lot of mistakes. And I'm actually amazed that we made it as far as we did. And I'll tell you, probably the biggest mistake we made is we went after deals that were so big uh, that when we landed one of them, uh, actually, we, we, we got a lot of great small deals, and our prize was winning Chrysler. And, and I mean, I spent two years working to win Chrysler, and then when we won it, it was like catching the elephant. Yeah. What are we going to do? Yeah. And you know, today, with my own team, I tell them, look, this is the market we're focused on, and it's really easy to go after these mega deals. It, you know, it's not always all good to win one of these things. You have to stay focused. Yeah. And that, that's probably one of the things I really learned about the small during that time. Got to stay focused. Yeah. And focus on an animal you can cook. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right. All right. So you have a set of experiences. The one I really want to drill into a little bit is your time at IBM. Uh, because you took an approach to business value creation there that I think is is really interesting. It's unique to you, and and it's something that you've executed against successfully several times, the most recent of which being Carbonite itself, and I want to get to that. But um, tell us about IBM, um, what you uh, found there, and, and what your job was, what you, tr- what you tried to do there. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, IBM's an incredible place and has been for over 100 years, and I learned so much there. Um, but, w- but when I got there, w- one of the things in a, with a company that's been there for a long time is people seem to do the same things over and over. And so at one point um, after I'd been there maybe eight years or so in 2005, I was asked to go over to this business called DB2. It's a database business. And it was struggling somewhat. And I, and I was asked to figure out how to help get it to a better place. And very quickly I realized that, you know, we could get it to a better place, but the amount of incremental... Uh, d- dollars it would bring into the company wasn't a- actually meaningful enough to put all this effort into it. So um, with a few other people, we came up with a completely different strategy, which was this business was generating a fair amount of cash. How can we build a whole adjacent business next to it? And the, the business idea that we came up with was analytics. And the thought was that this database was storing all your data but it's really not about what, where you store your data. It's about what you do with your data. And so we actually mapped out uh, what this analytics stack would look like. How would we go to market? In 2005, uh, there were actually two other people, a guy named Tom Riley, who's now CEO of Cloudera, and a guy named Nelson Matos, who um, was from IBM Research, and then he went to be head of Google Engineering in Europe. And the three of us mapped this out. And then the other two eventually left the company, and I was there holding the bag. Um, so for the next five years, we acquired all the assets, um, 
uh, we acquired a, a, a layer called EPL that would be able to extract data, da layers that would cleanse the data, create master data, do analytics on the data. Companies like Cognos and SPSS, we, we, we acquired all of those. But you couldn't just acquire it. You had to build a unified platform. So we actually found this guy named Jim Welsh, who is now head of engineering at Kronos, and Jim architected what this platform should look like and how the pieces would fit together. And when we were done, we had the premier platform on the planet, and it became you know, IBM's analytics platform. And even uh, today, uh, the, the Watson Health uh, software stack, much of it is that platform. And so that, that business event eventually became an $8 billion business. And you know, I think it's an important, very important part of IBM today. It's a, it's a remarkable story, and I really want to unpack it a little bit. So there's sort of three stages to that. And the first is formulating a vision for a new opportunity. Um, you know, why analytics? You know, why, how did you think about the value of the asset that you controlled in the form of DB2? And, and, and how did you pick that as the right way to extend that business into a new market? Yeah, you know, I think we, we're all products of our history and our background. And um, that very first startup that we did in 1993, right, so 25-ish years ago, um, that was an, uh, an analytics business. And the problem that we realized was that data was inherently messy. And if you have junk for data, your result is going to be junk. So eventually... The, the sectors we were able to apply this to were sectors with clean data. It turns out that factories, industrial factories, have clean data because if data is not clean, something breaks and somebody dies, a robot. Right, right, you know? right. And so the data is clean, and so we were able to apply it to that. And for you know, several couple of decades, I sort of pondered this, well, maybe one decade because it was 2005, how do you apply this to business? And then when I got to this DB2 business, it occurred to me, that look, we're, we're IBM, this is a whole other set of resources that I have to work with. Why not put all of IBM behind solving this problem of clean data in the enterprise? And so in order to do analytics, which was the end goal, first we have to have clean data. And, and it didn't matter what the source was, it could be DB2, it could be Oracle, it could be SAP, it could be whatever. Right. I needed a layer that would extract all of that. And that layer was a company called Essential. And we, when we bought it, um, and now we can extract all data, and then we need to cleanse the data and put it in master data. And so I think someone who didn't have that experience in 1993 of doing analytics without clean data wouldn't have started at the clean data level. And once we had the clean data, we could apply the analytics, and you actually got really, really useful things that business could use. And so uh, how, how do you come up with this strategy to meet a market? Um, I think part of it is you have to have a bunch of experiences, but you also have to be willing to look at the assets that you've got now, because the IBM assets that were at our disposal were tremendous. And then you put those two things together, and if it hits a market that has a need, then you're off and running. If someone came into your office and they were an executive who was about to acquire a company for the first time or was contemplating an acquisition, and they said, you know, like, you know, you've done a lot of this. Like, you know, what's the key to, you know, how do you think about whether to buy a company? Like deciding on company X versus company Y. What's your best advice for someone who is facing that kind of a decision for the first time? So if I didn't know anything else about this, I would say don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> 
because 75% <laughs> of all acquisitions fail to meet their business case. So just statistically, you're going to fail, yeah. right? So I would say, well, have you done this? Have you done this sort of thing before? Do you have a team that knows how to integrate this? Um, and if the answer to all those is yes, then I would say, well, what's the strategy? How does it fit in? Where does it create value? Do you have an integration plan? Um, I, you know, and all those things would have to be true. Also, do you have a core business that's healthy? Because if you don't have a core business that's healthy, uh, you can't afford any mistakes here now, right? And right. so there are all these factors in how to best utilize acquisitions as part of a strategy. And to be quite honest, since 75% of them fail, uh, you know, most people don't do it well. Right. So it's <laughs> the value, the, the latent value isn't in the transaction. It's in the strategic context, Absolutely, um, and yeah, the yeah. the integration. Right, right. If, right. if you After don't know what to do with it, or even if you know what to do with it, you know, strategy always goes hand in hand with execution. Right, right. And if you if you have a great strategy but you don't have the capacity to execute on the steps to turn it into value, it it doesn't matter. We'll be right back. Howard can it be is sponsored by G Twenty Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. For more on the intersection of immigration and entrepreneurship in the Boston startup ecosystem, be sure and check out my conversation with Natiza founder and CEO, Jit Saxena, way back in episode two of the How Hard Can It Be podcast. Jit talks about his experiences growing up in India, including the challenge of deciding between the two professions considered to be acceptable for men of his generation. In those days, Unless you were from a business family, if you were, if you were from a regular middle-class family, uh, there were only really two options if you wanted to make a decent living. Uh, one was to, of course, become a doctor, and the other one was to become an engineer. That way you were assured of having a job at least. And uh, so most of the people of my age group and all that chose one or the other. I frankly didn't like either of those two options. But I think the common sense would have told me that uh, I should choose one of those two. And uh, I definitely did not want to be a doctor because uh, I just didn't have a sort of the personality for that. Uh, And just because everybody else in the family was thinking that way, maybe I wanted to be somebody different. That's episode two of How Hard Can It Be, available now wherever podcasts are sold. Well, let's get back to my conversation with Carbonite President and CEO, Mohammed Ali. So um, you create this awesome business um, at, uh, at IBM, and um, you went on to you know major roles at Avaya. That was, I think, when we met the first time mm-hmm, when you were running mm-hmm. the business. You ran and all Mass of TLC. That's you right. helped us with the brand. That's right. right. I, I just I needed to plug Mass uh, TLC there. Very, just very nice. Time. Nicely done. <laughs> Dealing with a pro here. Um, um, you were also the chief strategy officer at HP, and... You know, in some ways, that was that was almost the reverse of this, right? Yes. That there you're you're uh, dissembling a set of assets. So, to talk a little, talk a little bit about that in the context of of this um, approach. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. That this was the reverse of that, and um, actually, one of the things that Meg um, uh, and I agreed to was that until we figured out what to do at HP, we would actually not do any acquisitions because. Um, 
we we didn't uh, historically show that we had the capacity to integrate these acquisitions right. well. Now that some of that has changed, and HP is now doing acquisitions again, and I think they have better capacity to do it. But one of the issues with HP was in some ways it was just too large. It was $112 billion and something like 85% of the business were in markets that were in secular decline. So once you hit that point in your business, it becomes very hard to pull out of it. And so each unit actually were, were challenged with coming up with strategy, go forward strategies, and they came up with great strategies. But because they were so uh, um, they, they were so connected to each other, it was hard to execute on those strategies. And it became very clear that these com- these businesses needed to be separate businesses. And then each one of those businesses could actually have a fighting chance at being successful in their own market. And now HP is you know is in four different parts. Uh, two of them have been merged with other businesses, and I think those businesses have real fighting chances because they they have bulk in their category now. And then the other two are independent companies. And if you look at HP Inc., HP Inc. just recently acquired you know Samsung's uh, printer business. HP Inc. is generating a tremendous amount of cash, and they can use that to uh, grow into other segments that are adjacent. And you know, be a long-term solid player. Also, the mobile market has come back, the laptop market, because tablets have saturated, right. and now that's a good market again. And so, you know, th- these four businesses, which are in different places, have um, have the opportunity to be successful. And if you look at the value that's been created through this split, it's many tens of billions of dollars that have been created and will continue to be created. And you just couldn't do that as one business together. And Meg came to this realization, I think, very early being a strategist herself. And it was a tremendous opportunity to be able to work with her to take the strategy, marry it with the execution, and get these things done. But at the end of the day, you know, it goes back to that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, Whatever the problem is, you just have to look at it uh, you know, like you're an immigrant from some other country with no money and you've got to figure out what to do. And, um, and you know, that's sort of how I've looked at a number of these problems, whether it's building businesses at IBM or disassembling business so that you can create value. Right. Revenue in excess of expense. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, having been on both sides of M&A transactions as an acquirer and the acquired, um, there's a human dimension to these transactions as well. And I, I think, you know, you, you sort of um, allude to almost a diseconomy of scale, like where you're acquiring these big businesses. You know, in any business, no matter how large, you know, there's 10 people you got to make sure are happy and you got to take right. care of and you got to put your hands on and, and show them, you know, what their role is in the new organization. Yeah. And uh, talk a little bit about the human dimension of, yeah. of a successful both in an acquisition mode and in a divestiture, mm-hmm. like that's so important, I think, mm-hmm. and and people rarely discuss it. Yeah, at the end of the day, especially in the business that we're in, which is the intellectual property business, right? right? Technology is about the people, and if you lose the people, the deals, you know, worth a lot less. Right, one plus uh, one equals one. Exactly, <laughs> or one plus one could be even less than <laughs> <Yeah>. one, right? <laughs> um, not even. And so, um, I mean, I have seen companies acquire other companies, and two years later, every single employee is gone. Yeah. 
that's just a disaster. And so, you know, obviously you have to do things like retention agreements and so forth. Um, but you also have to give people meaningful uh, uh, roles going forward. And we were reasonably successful at, at IBM. We were able to keep senior executives for at least two years, sometimes three, sometimes five. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a guy who runs services for one of the divisions now, and um, we acquired the company that he was with, Essential, in 2005. And I remember he said to me, Mohammed, as soon as my, my two-year retention runs out, I'm out of here because I just cannot stand <laughs> IBM. That guy is still at IBM today, right? Um, so we've had some good successes like that, and we've really applied that, those concepts at, at Carbonite. Not, not only do we try to give people good roles, but we also are really focused on developing a strong and positive and fun culture for everyone, including those who are acquired. And... Um, um, you know, but at the end of the day, financial incentives only go so far. People have to believe in the work and believe that they have an important role and, and have to have an important role and want to contribute to the larger vision of the project. Right. Well, that's a great segue into Carbonite. So um, you invited me to lunch a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I went over to see my friend Mohammed, not with huge expectations about Carbonite, because the Carbonite I knew was the carbonate that most people know, right. uh, which is a sort of dial-up, backup. Which and, we have to change. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. By the way, you know, spectacular. You talk about the culture and the energy of the place. The new headquarters is just amazing. If people haven't seen it, um, it's so cool what you guys have done. I love, like, all the Star Wars stuff, and uh, it's such a, um, you know, you can feel the energy of the place. And, and uh, you know, we, hey, we and have... We'll invite anybody listening to this to come <laughs> visit. We... We actually do all these meetups after work. That's Every great. day I walk out of the building, there's some meetup going on. I have no idea who these people are. It's just great to have the community you know, in our space. That's a great offer. So yeah. ping either of us on Twitter if you're interested in, uh, in setting up that kind of an event. Tell, tell me that story. Like, wh what, did you, what did you see as, as you were sort of uh, taking a look at Carbonite? And, and what was the strategy that you began with before you began to accumulate the assets and, and build what has become really an exciting business again? Yeah. So, um, you know, when, I, when, I first, when they first reached out to me about Carbonite, my initial reaction was similar to yours. You know, what can you possibly do with this business? Mm -hmm. um, but... But the one thing that really attracted me to it was that it was based in Boston. And for 17 years, I worked for IBM and HP and all these companies that are not based in Boston. And I live in Boston. I love Boston. <laughs> so I decided I'd go look. Yeah. And what I realized was that, you know, um, as I said uh, before, we are products of our past. And I've had some experiences in my past that really played the carbonite. And one of them was that, when I was at IBM, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get into the mid-market and the SMB. And it's very difficult to take an enterprise-grade product and move it down. And, you know, we tried and, you know, I was part of some of that. And I have to say we failed. And that failure um, was is important because you learn from failures, right? right? Well, you should learn from failures. And, um, and so I, I get to Carbonite and... One, they had, they had, take, they had built one product um, in 2005, and it was wildly successful. And this is the backup product that sure. you know for your laptop, which we still sell, and it's a great product, and it's the market leader, and everybody out there should back up. 
my plug for the day. Um, but the, the second thing that they had done is that they had extended this into the, S, the SMB market, um, and they had offered something called Carbonite Server Backup, but they had done it in such a simple way. They had um, uh, they acquired this little company that like, backs up the International Space Station, so very complicated, you know, on-prem because there's no cloud connection right. up there. Beyond the cloud. And, and you know, it would take like a half a day to install this thing, and they created a version of this that it was like six clicks and it was done. And so they made it consumer simple, and um, it was a small business. It was not at scale. And when I realized that they had the capability to do this, and I also had always believed that in order to penetrate the mid-market, you actually had to come from the consumer space, not from the enterprise. And so all of a sudden, I realized that uh, there's a huge opportunity here, and not necessarily uh, in building out the consumer business, right? Um, you know, it's sort of like going to DB2 and say, hey, fix this business, and then we built a whole adjacent business. Right. And at Carbonite, it's very similar. I get there, and, you know, the first... Uh, indication is let's just fix this consumer business. But what I realized is that you could build this huge mid-market business uh, right next to it, which will be a lot more profitable, and you could continue the consumer business. So, um, you know, in December of 2014, when I joined, um, I actually drew the same sort of stack diagram of what the ultimate solution would be for the market, like we did in 2005 at IBM for right. analytics. And uh, we made a list of companies that had the assets that could fill out this capability. And then I needed somebody like the Jim Welsh to actually architect the superstructure um, that this would all fit into. And there we have a, a great team from Microsoft and EMC and RSA that is sort of our organic um, development team. And so we assembled this and we started putting the parts together. And now we have, uh, you know, the premier uh, cloud-based uh, data protection portfolio for the mid-market. Um, we can do everything from backup hundreds of servers and protect you against ransomware to uh, disaster recovery, where if you're in Louisiana and you know you get flooded, we can fail over all your servers into a cloud that we have, and your employees can go home with a laptop and connect to the cloud and keep working. Yeah. Um, uh, all the way to if um, if you want to. Uh, migrate your workload from on-prem to AWS, our, um, our uh, um, high availability solutions actually does that. You fail over to AWS, we set that up, you just never fail back. It's an interesting use case. Or airlines that uh, use our technology for high availability. You have a bunch of servers that are doing reservations and flight tracking, whatever. You can't have them go down. You need to be able to fail over in case something goes wrong. So, you know, so we have this broad portfolio of the category called data protection. Um, and the thing that we're doing is we're making it consumer simple. And by making it consumer simple for the enterprise and mid-market and small businesses, for the whole business segment, it's getting it's getting consumed at a pretty rapid rate, and that's why Carbonite's been growing so nicely, and the stock price has tripled, and you know the size of the company has doubled, and uh, it's it's really an exciting place, and I mean I I love being there. Oh, you can feel it. You can feel it when you walk in the door, and uh, it's a credit to you and what you've done there. It's just a fantastic story. Um, you know, what can people expect next? Where do you go from here? Do you do you stay on this track? Is this something that you want to do again and again, or at some point do you kind of you know, hunker down and really optimize the business that you've already built. What, what, what's next? 
so um, it's funny that you asked that because we just had an all hands meeting today, and I was talking about exactly that. What's next? Um, and in September 19th, we're doing an analyst day at Carbonite where we're going to talk about it. we're going to lay out the strategy going forward. And um, a big part of it is anchored around something we call One Carbonite, bringing this whole portfolio together so that all so that our partners and our customers can consume everything that we have in a simple way. Today, we still have things like multiple websites. We're bringing them all together into one website. Right. We still have multiple IT systems. We're bringing them all together into one IT system. So you could see for maybe 12, 18 months or so, um, uh, this whole One Carbonite initiative, which will then allow us to cross-sell. Cross-sell is really important, right? So when we had one product, if you sold to 100 customers at a dollar each, and then a year later you renew 85 of them, you have $85. Right. And if you're only selling one product, okay, you got $85, you need $15 more, 15 more subs to, to catch up, to even break even. What if you could sell them two products? Today we have five products, but it's just two products to everyone. Then it's $170. Then you know your base is totally stable. And we have five of these things. So that's the next big opportunity I see um, within the next 12 to 18 months. But now that we have a very strong data protection portfolio. There are things that go around that. These businesses have other needs around securing their environments, and there's no reason we can't continue to do what we've done. You know, you, you, I don't know if you remember seeing the the, the, the uh, stack diagram that I had, but there are a few blocks in there that haven't been filled out yet. Yeah. We can continue to do that. Well, it's fantastic. Um, uh, you're, still, uh, you're still buying those floppies for cheap and selling them for, for more, and uh, um, it's it's a great Boston success story, uh, as is your entire career. Um, I really want to thank you for spending some time and uh, sharing your story with uh, with our folks. And um, uh, I wish you the best, Mohammed. Well, Mike, thank you so much for having me today. All right, my friend Mohammed Ali, what a great guy and uh, amazing leader. So excited about what's happening at Carbonite right now. Uh, I mean it sincerely. Their their office is spectacular. It's a great offer to go and uh, hold an event there. Uh, Mohammed is a big supporter of the community and um, uh, hit either of us up on Twitter if that's something you're interested in learning more about. Uh, all right, be sure not to miss out on my next conversation with a major luminary in the Boston startup community. Uh, look, how hard can it be up on your favorite podcasting platform? Click that big subscribe button. While you're there, please consider giving us a quick five-star rating. It really helps spread the word. Uh, thanks for sticking around, and we will see you next time. Next time.